This is Steve Addison for the Movements Podcast, a podcast for people who want to multiply disciples and churches everywhere. Today, we're talking to Dr. George Robinson about how one seminary is adapting to train movement pioneers. I uh, came to faith in Christ as a senior um, at the university in the state of Georgia, which is where I'm from. And um, very quickly, the the um, farmer who led me to faith in Christ uh, was very intentional in terms of uh, discipling me and not just discipling me in the sense of, uh, you know, me growing deeper in my faith, but also five days after I came to faith, he had me out sharing my faith with other people. Okay. Um, and so that marked me in many respects. I was a, uh, went on to, to be a high school history teacher. And um, I'll never forget when I was uh, preparing a lesson in cultural geography in, in South and Southeast Asia um, that it, it hit me when I realized that I was very faithful at going to my neighbors and strategizing to reach out to people with the gospel and even make disciples in Metro Atlanta, but who was going to tell these people overseas? And so all of that um, eventually led to my coming to pursue uh, theological education, but a different kind of theological education. I, I teach now at Southeastern Seminary. And they were the forerunners here uh, back in the mid-90s of a program called the International Church Planting um, 2 Plus 2 degree. And the way that that degree is organized, instead of a typical theological education, which kind of partitions you off into the classroom for years, and then after you graduate, they say, go do it. Um, This degree is designed with uh, field practicum built in. And so I did two years of theological training and prep here on campus. And then uh, the second half of that degree was serving uh, with the the International Mission Board uh, in South Asia. And so um, moving into work with an unreached people group in South Asia, wrestling with, okay, how do I evangelize? How do I make disciples? How do I multiply disciples here? So that, that's kind of the beginning of my journey. There have been a lot of twists and turns along the way, uh, but God has been faithful to, uh, uh, to keep me on those tracks, moving in the same direction, and even refining my understanding of, of what it means to make disciples of all nations. So. Okay, so you've had your own field experience of trying to implement the principles, and that I like the idea that was part of your ongoing training in 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 uh, in ministry and theology, Bible, those sorts of things. Absolutely. So all all of the courses you know that I took in preparation were actually aimed at my field service, and so I'll give you an example. When I took biblical ethics. Um, I actually was able to research and write a term paper on the ethics of church planting in restricted access countries. Mm-hmm. Um, when I took um, New Testament, for example, um, I was able to research and write on John chapter 4 and Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well as a model for cross-cultural evangelism. So all of my courses actually lended themselves towards field preparation for that time that I would serve in South Asia. Okay, and now what's your role? So I serve as the Associate Professor of Missions and Evangelism uh, here at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We're uh, in Wake Forest, the town of Wake Forest, North Carolina, just outside of Raleigh, in what a lot of people in the U.S. know as the Research Triangle, which is 
the densest concentration of PhDs in the U.S. Uh, we have Duke, Chapel Hill, uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and NC State all within 20 minutes of, of where we live here. Well, it's quite an interesting place to be. So it should be the, the brain capital of the U.S. then. Uh, one, one would think. And then when I moved in, I think that the, uh, the IQ level went down on average just a little bit. So. And, and so what are you learning now? You're in a role where you're preparing people for uh, cross-cultural uh, ministry in, in church planting and church multiplication. So what are you learning about uh, what it takes to do a good job of um, equipping? Yeah, that's a great question, Steve. I'll, I'm, I'll go back and kind of um, connect this with my mm-hmm. story. So when I, yeah. I did this degree in the 1990s um, and, and then served in uh, with uh, uh, an unreached people group of Muslim background in South Asia, I did that, that term and then ended up because of some family health issues having to return to the States. And I wrestled through um, uh, for about two years. I served in a pastoral capacity there in the States uh, was wrestling through how do I how do I stay on track with this calling because I really felt like God had called me to make disciples of of the nations, and so the interesting thing is is even in serving in a rural church here in the southern U.S., I began to to learn that those missiological principles that I'd picked up and refined in my studies and in my field practicum applied there in a two hundred year old traditional rural church. And so I started um, uh, uh, developing leaders who were reproducing and focusing on indigenous leadership rather than having everything uh, come back to me. And so I learned a lot even during that era. Ended up raising uh, support and uh, was a faith-based missionary with an organization uh, for about seven years uh, where I lived in Atlanta because of our my mother-in-law's uh, cancer. Lived in Atlanta, but I worked um, in uh, initially the first two years coaching networks of church planters in Panama and Peru. Uh, and then for the last five years, I coached networks of church planters in India, um, Bangladesh, um, a little bit in Nepal. Um, and so uh, interacting with, with people in those areas. I've learned uh, far more uh, from my experience in working with nationals in those places um, that has helped me to clarify um, what it means to make reproducing disciples here and now. So it's kind of a long narrative mm. uh, response. I can give you more details if you're, if you're well, interested in principles. You, your background really is both yourself being engaged in, in South Asia with Muslim background folk, but now you've, you've come to a point where you've had a wide experience of different cultures coaching and, and equipping church planters. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So, and, and like I said, you know, it, my experience initially those first couple of years in Latin America was um, working pr- primarily with existing pastors and teaching them and work, working alongside them to see their churches reproduce. We actually saw um, uh, the beginnings of, of a movement. I think of uh, one uh, brother that I worked with there, I learned tremendous amount. He actually, as a teenager uh, in Peru, was a member of the Shining Path terrorist organization. Mm-hmm. Um, a similar uh, conversion experience, I suppose, to to Paul. And the same, um, uh, same 
passion that he had given towards terror, now he was giving towards the church. And uh, that brother uh, planted uh, a church in Lima, Peru, uh, discipled about a dozen men, sent them out to plant churches. And I got to work alongside them over the course of probably an eight-year period. Uh, They planted uh, over 300 churches in Peru, going over into Ecuador and Bolivia, and and that certainly wasn't me. I was learning mm. uh, by walking alongside them in that journey. But the you know the main thing I learned there is that um, my role is in many respects a Barnabas, an encourager, um, and providing them with resources. And when I say resources, I'm not talking financial. I'm talking about. Um, theological education, some things like that to help them along the way to refine their their skills, I, I think helped uh, that multiplication to take place even uh, at an even uh, uh, more healthy growth rate and um, uh, healthy foundation. So, Can you just tease that out for us a bit? What did that look like, say, in your coaching or training role in a particular context, how did you help them in their development? And I guess as a byproduct of that, they they saw greater fruitfulness or, or effectiveness in the ministry. Yeah, it was interesting, Steve, because one of the things that we did, the organization I worked with, um, had had historically focused on sending short-term mission teams. And so we did some of that. I actually did my doctoral research on uh, the question, is there such a thing as strategic short-term missions? And what I found in that research and by working alongside um, men like uh, Juvenal that I mentioned there in Peru is that um, uh, if you encourage and model uh, the right principles, even if you're not super effective as an expat team going into those places, even if you're not super effective, if you model obedience um, and you walk alongside them and then provide encouragement that that they'll take those principles and then begin to implement them and refine them and contextualize them in such a way that they accomplish far more. And that's, that's what I found in my research in Peru in particular is that they became more, the, the nationals became more effective at doing uh, uh, evangelism, disciple making that led to new churches uh, than we had been uh, when we were doing it alongside them. And so, but they would have never gotten the principles had we not walked uh, together down that path. Okay. And it's not any sort of short-term mission results in that. No, no, no. What what was it about the Westerners who came, even though they were more the catalyst than the long-term solution? What was it that they were doing that that helped jumpstart things? Yeah, so my, my first book, I document that. I've, I've got an old book that's out of print now called Striking the Match that was, um, uh, the, the subtitle of it is How God is Using Ordinary People to Change the World. Um, and the, the point behind my research and behind that book is that what we would do as an organization, what I would do as a catalyst, a church planning catalyst of sorts, is I would uh, go to the area that was going to be hosting a short-term team, and I would train them in biblical church planting principles. And then I would come back and recruit a short-term mission team, 
and I would train them in those same principles. Mm-hmm. And then, um, we would put those two groups together for an intensive period of time, say eight to 10 days, mm-hmm. and they would practice those principles together. Evangelism, disciple making that, that has the goal of starting a new church. And as they walked alongside one another, certainly mistakes would be made, but there was a, an encouragement mm-hmm. by these people who came all the way around the world to help mm-hmm. us do this. And these people here locally are, are excited by that. They're mobilized through that. And so they're working together. And then these people go back home. And what happens is the nationals take that and continue to move. And that provides encouragement for the people back here in the U.S. who would then look at their own environment, their own neighborhoods and say, wait a second. I flew halfway around the world to do something I'm not doing here. Maybe I should start doing that here. And so we found that a lot of churches here in the States began to implement some of those principles and, and see some neat things happen too. So it's when the Westerner comes, not, not just to be up on a platform with a crowd listening to them preach, but they've been trained in, in good, solid principles. They're shoulder to shoulder with the nationals. Mm-hmm. Um, the Nationals have also had training, so they're on the same page. It's, it's an encouragement, a partnership. Right. It then springs, springboards for the National, and as, as the Westerner goes back, it, it also is a springboard for them back home. Yeah, that's, that's why, what I call interdependent relationships. Okay. Um, and so that interdependent partnership is formed where uh, every, every party benefits from the faithfulness and the obedience of the others. And so, you know, the book is based around a metaphor, striking the match. If you Mm -hmm. think about a match, when you strike a match, you've got about seven to 10 seconds for that match Mm to ignite something outside of itself. And if it fails to ignite something outside of itself, it was a wasted resource. Mm -hmm. That's what a short-term mission team is. And Mm -hmm. so when we think of a short-term mission team, it's not about the match. It's Mm -hmm. about the fire. And um, so I'm going to do everything I can in advance to prepare the kindling, which is national leadership, training those nationals on church planning principles so that when I strike the match, the conditions are made right to ignite a fire that continues and perpetuates long after the match is burned out. That's how I measure whether or not a short-term mission trip is is effective. Okay. But it sounds like that's a principle that, say, is even applied for you in your role as a coach and trainer. You're, I imagine you're, you're probably on the internet, but you're also traveling in quite a bit. Mm-hmm. But you're doing that as somebody who is there to strike a match, to empower locals. And I imagine that also applies to those who are thinking long-term. They want to be somewhere overseas Right. But even in that role, it's a striking the match role. Sure, sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, after after working as a coach for those church planning networks um, for roughly seven years, I finished my doctoral studies and um, was very quickly, uh, by God's grace, hired back here at Southeastern Seminary. And uh, the interesting thing about the role that I'm in is now I get to come back and we still have that same degree program where students come and they study here on our campus for two to three years. And then they go and they do a minimum of a two to three year term overseas working with the express purpose of church planting. And so the beauty now is that 
when students come here, I'm trying to help them set goals um, and to begin to do here and now, not just think about, not just write about, but begin to do here and now what it is they're going to be required to do to see a movement take place when they move overseas. And so, you know, one of the things that I've done uh, to, to change in some respects, the preparation, having gone through it, you know, mm-hmm. 20 years ago, um, one of the things I've done to change that is I require all of my students to every semester um, do cross-cultural um, evangelistic reports. And so I help them to identify. We've mapped out key pockets of lostness here in the research triangle area. Um, we've identified the various ethnic groups, which ones, which areas have unreached people groups concentrated. And we help them and challenge them to build a strategy to engage here while they're students, right? Mm-hmm. They can come into class and they can debrief with me and say, oh, I did this wrong or I wish I would have known this. And I can resource them and coach them here on the ground um, as they're making those mistakes, they're learning in many respects, like the disciples did, to fail forward, right? Um, and 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 send them back out. And then when they deploy and they go to work overseas, I continue in some respects that role with many of my students through online coaching. Um, in fact, I had had breakfast with one of my uh, graduates uh, right before this interview this morning, who is serving in Eastern Europe in a church planning role, and they've hit some some uh, some roadblocks. And so I'm just there to encourage, to remind him of those principles um, and to, to push him out, uh, you know, to, to understand that you don't plant churches apart from evangelism. It's just not going to happen. Um, so anyway, that's kind of long. So and short. It's, um, it's more of a, a both and model of preparation that you're you're doing um, the important biblical theological preparation, but you're also at the same time they're engaged in the field. And this is the exciting thing. When they deploy, there's still an ongoing role in in, in training and educating and coaching them from from a distance. There is. Yeah, there is. In fact, uh, I'm not the only one here on our campus that does that. We've got multiple faculty members that continue to speak into and coach. Um, and in fact, even the, the students that deploy from here with our with that degree pro- program, um, about a year into their field experience, faculty fly over and they meet at uh, a designated area, a designated hotel for three weeks, and they do a debrief on their first year of their term. They take a few more classes, they're in the hotel, and then they're sent back out kind of refreshed and um, and, and refocus towards those, those same church planning goals. So that means that the educators back home mm-hmm. are actually learning themselves. Absolutely. Because Absolutely. I imagine you do one of those trips and all of a sudden you realize, okay, this is a reminder of the sort of world in which they're ministering, the issues they're facing. That also helps shape how you're training back home. Right. And, and you know, quite frankly, Steve, because we send people to so many diverse locations, there, there are a lot of contexts that I've never actually been feet in the street doing ministry in. And so I'm learning through the, the guys and, and gals that I'm coaching um, by hearing from them the things they're facing. You know, the, the brother this morning is, is in a country in Eastern Europe, and, you know, he's telling me about some of the things I'm facing. Well, I've never been there. 
I don't know that context, but I do know those biblical principles that you're never going to get to church planting unless you focus on in an area where there's almost no believers, highest Mm -hmm. atheist population in Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's never going to get to church unless he focuses here in these first couple of years on doing evangelism, broad sowing evangelism and trying to, to identify uh, from that broad sowing people who are responsive and open to discipleship. So um, just reminding him of that, you know, but at the same time, I'm learning more about his context um, by having that coaching appointment. There are, pl- there are plenty of places, there, there are whole continents that I've yet to have uh, been and, and done ministry in. Um, but, you know, I can't think of a continent outside of Antarctica where I haven't coached uh, someone who's serving there. So I'm, I'm constantly learning uh, myself just by this interaction. What, what are you learning about how someone best prepares for overseas missions long term? You know, you've you've done that yourself in your own life. You've got these students who are deployed. So what what are some of the the things at play when if someone's listening to this and they themselves are thinking, you know, I I think that call might be on my life. Right. What 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 advice would you give them? There's a a couple of things I would say. Number one, there seems to be somewhat of a, a generational shift that I'm watching take place with missions and because of the increase of short-term missions, which has pros and cons um, because of the increase in short-term missions, because the globe is shrinking, because, you know, the world is, is getting flatter. um, uh, You know, the, the, the persevering spirit seems to be waning uh, Mm -hmm. for long-term residential work and kind of uh, meeting it out in places where maybe there's not, you know, rapid response. Um, you know, most of the missionary heroes from the 19th century, it was six, seven years before they saw their first convert. Mm. And um, so one of the problems I see generationally is a lot of our students um, and a lot of young uh, missionaries are very idealistic because they've had exposure cross-culturally short-term, uh, but they're not thinking long-term. Yeah. And they don't have clear goals and, and if you're going to plant churches, you can plant a church in a couple of weeks. We see that with Paul in Thessalonica. Um, but if you're going to be a church planter, then uh, here's the principle that I give to my students. You need to go prepared to stay a lifetime, but live each day as if it's your last. Go prepared to stay a lifetime, but live each day as if it's your last. And so um, what that does is it keeps the, the good, healthy tension of urgency this could be my last day here mm-hmm. um, and longevity and perseverance. Well, you know what? Um, I need to take this as, you know, with a grain of salt and continue to persevere. And I think about my own ministry in South Asia, when we lived in the Himalayas and working with that unreached people group, it wasn't, it was literally Steve, the last week that I was on the ground, had no idea that our time was coming uh, to an end there uh, when we saw our first converts. Mm. Um, and, and I'm glad that I was living with urgency as if it could be my last day. Um, and not just thinking, oh, well, I'm going to be here 20 years. Circumstances dictated something other to me. So that's, that's one principle, you know, go, go prepare to stay a lifetime, live each day as if it's your last. Uh, the other thing is, um, 
you know, you've got to focus on disciple making. I've mentioned a lot about evangelism, uh, but ultimately, um, if you don't have in view what it means to make disciples, um, then you're going to struggle. Um, uh, and so I had the benefit. What do you mean by make disciples too? Because that's, that's a, everybody has their definition. So what's your understanding? Of- so long ago, I was mentored by uh, a, a, a man named Dr. George Patterson. Mm-hmm. A lot of people yep. who talk about movements um, are familiar with George. George was one of my doctoral mentors. And um, he trained me in this thing way before it was uh, kind of... Uh, uh, broadly out there. He trained me in this, this thing called the seven basic commands of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And what it did for me is it actually painted a picture for me of what a healthy disciple looks like. It gave me um, uh, some measurable steps that I could take when I was uh, working with a, a person to see them come to faith, to see them begin to have a pattern of obedience. We have this rule around my house. I've got three teenagers and, and, one of my mantras in, in our home is first-time obedience without complaint and without delay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the things that I think, I fear that we often do, especially as Westerners, when somebody comes to faith, we actually teach them non-obedience mm-hmm. or delayed obedience. And in delayed obedience is not obedience at all. And so Patterson helped me to be comfortable with a gospel of grace that becomes the fuel for obedience. Yeah. I always saw those two as being contrary to one another. Um, but the gospel of grace, you know, Paul says it in Romans chapter one, verse five, he says, it's, um, it's an obedience that comes from faith. Yes. In other words, it's a faith fueled obedience. So when I talk about making disciples, um, I'm talking about um, teaching uh, that, that people need to repent, believe, and receive the Holy Spirit. They need to be baptized. They need to celebrate the Lord's Supper and worship God. They need to learn what it means to love God and to love others. They need to learn how to pray at all times for all things. They need to learn how to give generously of time, talent, treasure. And they need to understand that all of that is in view of them making disciples who also obey. And so that's the seven basic Mm -hmm. commands of Jesus as I learned them from from uh, Dr. Patterson and have been teaching them to others ever since. Now, now George, I'm a bit disappointed because you, you're in an academic environment and, and, and you're making it sound so simple. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? You know, the gospel is so simple that a child can understand it and respond mm-hmm. to it, but it's so profound. Yes. And I didn't say it was easy. I just said it was profoundly right. simple. <laughs> yeah. Theologians can spend their lives discovering and plumbing the depths of it, but it doesn't have to. One of the things that Patterson told me, Steve, is that it doesn't take a smart person to make something that is um, uh, doesn't take a smart person uh, to make uh, something sound difficult. Mm. Um, It takes a smart person to take something that's profound and make it sound easy. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that Jesus was a master of that, right? Mm. Uh, he set the bar high mm. in terms of what it means to be a disciple, but the gospel of grace was as simple as a response of repentance and faith. Anything else that you're learning, either about this, you know, how people should prepare or even the characteristics of, of those who, once they deploy to the field, 
do well. They stay longer term and, and they see the breakthroughs. Yeah. Well, you know, another a big thing that I've kind of highlighted and, and that we've tried to implement here is <clears throat> you need to be doing now what you plan to be doing then and there. Mm-hmm. Be doing here and now what you desire to do there and then. And if you're not doing it here and now, uh, then more than likely the the challenges of cross-cultural ministry, you're not going to be effective there and then. So there's a group of uh, guys that I mentored, discipled, that um, three years ago we sent to plant a church here in North Raleigh. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things that they desired to do was to plant, in many respects, a uh, a simple model church, a, a lightweight, fast-moving church, right, that can engage multi-ethnic um, uh, realities around them. And so one of the things that they're doing is they use some of those biblical principles that we talked about that we practiced here um, during their theological education of identifying persons of peace, of mapping out their oikos, of um, trying to develop a strategy for uh, meth- uh methodical engagement of a community and they've seen some amazing things happen you know they have a sunday gathering that meets at a local theater here um that looks you know liturgically like a a regular Mm -hmm. worship service yeah they also are focusing on engaging neighborhoods uh cross-culturally and so um just in the three years that they've been there well i can tell you six weeks ago um, we were doing a person of peace uh, outreach in apartment complexes, and we had two Ugandan immigrants that had lived in the States for five weeks come to repentance and faith in Christ um, through that outreach. Uh, within a week, we helped them to map their oikos. Mm. Um, and their apartment, this church plant, this, these, these white guys, right, that are planting a church in North Raleigh, are sitting in these Ugandans' apartments surrounded by other African immigrants and training those African immigrants on how to share their testimony, how to share God's story, and, and then inviting those people to come and witness their baptism, their first step of obedience. And that's becoming the nucleus of what we think will be a, a church of immigrants in that apartment complex. The same church. Um, One of the elders at that church goes into his upper middle class neighborhood and says, you know, why why should we do this just in lower income housing apartment complexes? Goes through his neighborhood. He faces some opposition uh, from some homes, but to his surprise, um, he's seen uh, a handful of people come to repentance and faith in his neighborhood, baptize them in a swimming pool in his backyard. Mm -hmm. Instead of trying to bring them into their church, started a house church in that neighborhood um, so that those people could be equipped to reach their neighbors because um, they're committed. They live there. So those are just a couple of examples of ways that guys are doing here and now um, what they plan to do there. And then some of these are preparing to go and to serve as cross-cultural missionaries overseas, but they're already practicing those habits here and now. I wish you'd been around when I was a young Well, thanks for listening. If you're enjoying these podcasts, why not uh, spread the word through social media or up onto iTunes and leave a review? It really does help. This is Steve Addison for the Movements Podcast.